morning, everybody. <laughs> nice to see everybody here. Folks that have been away are back, and uh, folks that have been kind of under the weather are back. I'm back. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank you very much for those of you who have prayed for me. I appreciate that very much, and we're still working our way through uh, things, but I think we're making progress. Thank you very much. Continue, please, to pray. And let's do that. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have given us your word. Your word is truth. And as we look into it today, I just pray that all of us would consider things that you have told us, and that we might be obedient to those things. And as we do, we know that you will bless us, that you will guide us, and that you will provide for us. And so we just ask for your undertaking as you look into the Word. Father, speak to all of us. We thank you for this, and I thank you for each one here. Bless them. We thank you for this now as we pray together in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, today we come to the last section of this great epistle of 1 John. Our text is 1 John chapter 5, uh, verses 13 to 21. And I've titled this section, Christian Certainty. If you read through this epistle, and if you were to highlight the word no, you would find that it's there 32 times. That's more than six times a chapter. So it makes it obvious that the word no is important to John, and it's important to his purpose in writing uh, to these believers. I stressed that point before, and especially uh, with our key verse that starts this section, uh, chapter 5, verse 13. So let's read the chapter, and as you listen, take note of the word know. 1 John 5, starting at verse 13. <clears throat> These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. We know that no one who is born of God sins. But he who is born of God keeps him, 
and the evil one does not touch us. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. So this section is all about what we know. And what we know, we can call Christian certainty. You know, we live in an uncertain world. You hear, you hear these pundits saying that all these are very unstable times. And if you allow yourself to focus on that, you're going to struggle with all the uncertainties around you. So a good question to ask yourself is, what are you absolutely certain of? What's the standard answer? <laughs> Death and taxes. Well, beyond that trite example or answer, what is it that you're really certain of? Now, for an unbeliever, it's difficult to answer that question. But if they say, well, I'm certain of death, they're in a good position to be asked. You're certain of death. Well, what about after you die? What are you certain of then? Because that's the inevitable question about eternity, life, or death. But be considerate of any lost soul who's living focused on this uncertain world. They'll be uncertain about a lot of things, particularly, particularly eternal things. But you, on the other hand, know that the Bible is God's revelation, and it is filled with absolute certainty. It's certain about how the universe began. It's certain about how it's going to end. It's certain about why people behave the way they do. It's certain about what's right and what's wrong. It's certain about what's necessary to go to heaven. It's certain about God's Son, His substitutionary death, His literal resurrection, and his second coming. The Bible is absolutely certain about all of these things. But those things are things that are easily accepted in our society. Christian believers are unique in a world of doubters <coughs> because God has given us a guarantee of our redemptive promise. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, 
Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge or a down payment of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. That's God's guarantee of our inheritance, the Holy Spirit of promise. When you became a believer, you put your trust in Jesus Christ. You did that because you were convicted that what he said about your sin was true. And that what he said about the judgment for your sin was true. And what he said about mercy and forgiveness and grace As you read the scripture, you believe what he said about Christ and his sacrifice for sin, so you put your trust in him. And because of that trust, because of that belief, you receive forgiveness for your sins and the promise of eternal life. To secure that promise, God gave you a deposit, a down payment guarantee, the Holy Spirit, who immediately took up residence in your heart. And that's exactly what Paul said in Ephesians 1.14. He's the erabon, is the word. The pledge, the guarantee, the down payment is even the word in that culture for an engagement ring, which is the symbol of a pledge and a promise. You see, God deals in certainty. He bound, he's bound himself by his word to those certainties, and he's guaranteed his promises through the gift of the Spirit. So at the end of John's epistle, he wants to reiterate these certainties that are ours in Christ. With verse 12, he ended the formal argument of the book. 5.12 really summed up everything that he'd been saying. It says, He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Remember, this is a book that is written to distinguish things from those who are false. And John sums it up by saying eternal life belongs to those who have the Son. And then verse 13 gives us the real purpose. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you may know that you have eternal life. It was really written to give believers assurance. Now he's going to close with five certainties. Things that we know are true. People who have a minimal interest or no interest at all in spiritual things generally say, well, I hope I'm going to heaven. I think I'm good enough. But don't you think that you should have some certainty about that? Because eternity is a long time. 
We had a lady that was visiting in our house one time, and uh, she said, uh, I understand you have a bookstore. And I said, yeah. And she said, could I see your library? I said, sure. So she went downstairs, took a look through the library, and she came back up again. And she said, most of those books are religious And so we talked about that a bit. And I told her how I had come to Christ. Placed my faith in Him. And I said, I know that I'm going to heaven. <laughs> and she said, well, well, you don't really know. And I just leaned over close and said, Jackie, I know. How do I know? Because of the promises that God has made. And God does not lie. Can you know? Of course, John says. That's why I wrote this epistle. Measure yourself against the test. And if you pass the test, you may know that you have eternal life. When you die, you're going to heaven. When people ask, are you sure you're going to heaven when you die? You can say with certainty, absolutely. Well, these Christians that John was writing to had been shaken by false teachers. They were insecure. They lost their confidence in God's forgiveness. And as a result, they'd lost their joy. So John has gone back and said, look, examine yourselves. If you're walking in the light as he is in the light, then you're in the fellowship. If you're confessing your sins, you're the one he's forgiving. If you're obeying the commandments of Christ, loving God and loving others, not loving the world, confessing Jesus as Lord, practicing righteousness, and experiencing that internal witness of the Holy Spirit, then you can be sure. So here's five things that we know for certain from this passage. First of all, we have eternal life. We know that we have eternal life. Verse 20 speaks of Jesus Christ and says, This is the true God and eternal life. So eternal life is living forever with God, possessing the very life of God that's possessed by Christ himself. You've entered into the very life of God. Think of yourself as a light bulb. The life of Christ has already been given to you, but your bulb doesn't have clear transparency. It's dimmed by your fallen flesh that you're still living in. The light doesn't shine as brightly as it will in eternity. But one day, we're going to leave this mortal flesh behind. 
We're going to enter into the glorious manifestation of the children of God. And we'll become absolutely transparent. Crystal clear light bulbs. And the full power of eternal life is going to radiate through us throughout eternity. In John 17, Jesus prayed, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ in your sake. That's exactly what we read here in 1 John. God and Christ are the eternal life. They're the power of eternal life. And if we say that we have eternal life, we're simply saying that we'll have the life of God within us forever. It's already true, but it's just not fully that that life is incarcerated in the darkness of our fallen We already possess eternal life. That's why we love God. That's why we love others. That's why we have a heart and a desire and a longing to obey God. That's why we desire righteousness and great sin. Because the life of God is already in us. If you put your trust in the Son of God, it's going to be manifest not only in your doctrine, but it's manifest in your life. You know it. You know you have it in life. That's the first thing. The second thing that we know is we know God answers our prayers. The full expression of the life of God within us is awaiting for a time when we leave this body behind and enter into glory. But in the meantime, we have needs. We have struggles. We have problems. We have concerns and we have issues. Verse 14. And this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we've asked from him. You know, there's a confidence in prayer. You have that confidence that you're asking according to God's will. And you have that confidence here, and He will answer. We have the boldness and the freedom to go before the Lord on any issue. We can freely and confidently make our requests known to Him. There's a freedom here. We're instructed in Scripture to come boldly to the throne of grace. It is. We experience grace when we came to Christ. We experience grace every day. We experience grace 
as we pray. We're not fully in His presence yet, but we still have access to all of His resources through prayer. As believers, we're confident enough to go right into the very presence of God and boldly ask for whatever it is we need. Verse 15, if we know He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we've asked from Him. Huh. Do you ever think about, there's no limits with God. He's not limited in any way. And as long as your prayer is in line with His will, then you know that you're going to have what you have. So, while we're waiting for this next life, we have the confidence that our prayers will be answered. Now you come to these two verses, 16 and 17. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask God, ask and God will... For him, give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I don't say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin. But there is a sin not leading to death. <laughs> These two verses seem a little out of place. You know, you read them and you think, hmm, how did that get in there? But as you look at the context here, you realize that the previous verses were talking about prayer and the assurance that God answers our prayers. John's talked about the condition to have prayers answered according to His will. And then you find out here that He will answer all of your prayers that are according to His will, with one exception. And that exception is if you're praying for somebody who's committed sin leading to death. In other words, God has already made the final decision as to the future of that person, and the decision is There's not going to be a change. So your prayers in relation to no possibility of being answered. Well, the next obvious question is, what is sin unto death? I'll tell you what I believe it is. It's talking about a Christian. A real Christian. A genuine Christian who commits a sin for which God takes his life or her life. Could that happen? Yes, it could. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 says there were some people who came to the Lord's table with hypocrisy and superficiality. They weren't being honest and they weren't dealing with their sins. They abused the Lord's table, and Paul says, because of this, 
some of you have done. Another instance was Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. God took their lives because they publicly lied to the Holy Spirit in front of the whole church. So what sin is it? Well, it's any sin that God determines that is enough for Him to take a believer out. It's sin that at, <clears throat> at that time, in that place, is compromising the church and the testimony of Christ to the degree that he actually removes the believer. It's not punishment for the believer. It's protection for the church and for the glory of God. It's protection for the integrity and purity of the gospel and for the witness of Jesus if that believer in the determination of the Lord has reached a certain pattern of sin and he's gone beyond, and God determines that their physical death will benefit the cause of Christ and the cause of his church. And John says, there's no point in praying for those people. It's all in the counsel of God. Let me give you a personal example of this. Young fellow that I knew, a number of us knew him. He's a Christian. I have no doubt about that. And he decided that he was going to run away with a certain girl. We knew it was wrong. So three of us talked to him. He said, Steve, you can't do this. This is right. He said, listen, you can't tell me what to do, and God can't tell me what to do. Don't say that. Three weeks later, he was dead. You can't do that. Walk circumspectly before God. Now, it's fairly obvious that most sins that believers commit do not lead to death. We're here. We're here this morning. We won't sin. But in God's purpose and plan, He hasn't seen us as required to be removed for the good of the church. And all of this is blended into God's mercy and His grace his infinite wisdom, and his eternal purposes. Remember this. <clears throat> Whatever you ask according to his will, he hears, and if he hears, he answers. In John 14, verse 13, Jesus put it this way. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. See, that's the point of our lives. The glory of God. That's why He saved us, that He might be glorified. And you know the extent 
of that promise is just staggering. If you ask anything in my name, that little phrase is the equivalent of according to His will. In His name is consistent with who He is. To refer to His name is to refer to all that He is and all that He does. We know that people who are blasphemers, why do they use the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? I asked a fellow that one time. He just, it was a constant stream of blasphemy. And I said, well, why don't you use your mother's name or, uh, you know, Fidel Castro's name or anybody else's name? No, he's not going to do that. Because he wants to soil the glory of God. In Jesus' name doesn't mean that I get everything that I ask for because I repeat this magic formula in Jesus' name. It's not the, the Christian equivalent of abracadabra. It's not a magic statement that obligates God to answer prayer. What it does, it forces me to consider, what am I praying for? Is this according to the will of God? Is this consistent with His person and His purpose? Thoughtful, honest, righteous prayers are the ones that get answered because they're according to His will. So, we know we have eternal life. We know we have our prayers answered. And now we come to the last three certainties. We know we have victory over sin. Verse 18. We know that no one who is born of God Hmm. You read that and you think, hmm, I don't think that's true. But it is true. Now let me explain. That verb, sin, is a present active indicative verb, which means it's an ongoing practice. When you become a Christian, Something's changed. Your desires have changed. Before, there was an unbroken pattern of sin. That's gone. That's gone. We know that no one who is born of God keeps on sinning in an unbroken pattern. We have victory over sin. We dealt with that earlier in this epistle, but here it is again. No one who's born of God, given a new nature, transformed, goes on in that same unbroken pattern of sin. Now you know that. When I came to Christ, things changed. Yeah, there was an, an unbroken pattern of sin before. Now there was a tenderness that was 
was not there before. That's because the Holy Spirit lives within you. He's telling you this is not right. Ephesians 2 says that the unconverted are dead in trespasses and sins. They walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now working in the sons of disobedience. They work in the they walk in the lusts of their flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and are by nature children of life. You see, they're in constant rebellion against the law of God. And they're in constant rebellion of his lordship. They're by nature. And that's the issue. How do you tell if someone's a believer? You look at their life. If there's a constant pattern of sin, virtually unbroken, you know that that slavery to sin has not been eliminated. The one born of God doesn't continue in the same pattern of sin. So, it isn't perfection we're talking about. It's direction. The direction has changed. That's what repentance means. You're going one way. You turn around and go exactly the opposite. And we don't continue in that pattern of sin because we've been given new life. New life is characterized by righteousness. That's a certainty. So we're certain that we have eternal life. We're certain that we have answered prayer. And we're certain that we have victory over sin. The fourth thing here, we know we belong to God. Verse 19. We know that we are of God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. There's two realms. There's the world, and there's the people of God. We belong to God, and the whole world belongs to Satan. We belong to God because he bought us for the price. On the other hand, the whole world belongs to the evil one. That's, that's a very dramatic picture. The whole world lies in the lap of the evil one. I'm like a baby being cradled and rocked to sleep. We're not there. We're not there. We're in the embrace of God. And by the world here, he means the whole human system. There's nothing in that system that's not under Satan's control. The economics, the politics, the religion, the education, the entertainment, the athletics, everything is a part of the system of the world. Now, there's elements in the world that we enjoy, and we can enjoy. We can enjoy them because they're God's creation. We can see the creative 
glory of God manifest in the world. But the system that functions within his creation, that's what we're talking about. It's completely contaminated. That's why John said earlier, do not love the world, nor the things in the world. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is of the world. The world is passing away, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. We have eternal life, we have access to the throne of God, we triumph over sin, and we belong to the Lord. in the world around us. They don't have eternal life. They don't have access to God through prayer. They're dominated by sin and they belong to the evil. And John ends where he began in chapter 1, verse 1. He said there, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life. Hmm. We saw him. We heard him. We touched him. We saw the eternal word of life. That's where he began. That's the first and greatest certainty that makes all the other certainties possible. So here he goes back to where he began. Verse 20. We know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. There's our fifth certainty. We know Jesus Christ is the true God and eternal life. Now here's what we know. We know that the Son of God We know that He has given us understanding in order that we might know Him. And now, we are in Him who is true. This is the climactic certainty. The evidence of what it means to be a Christian. You have been enlightened you have been given understanding by the Holy Spirit. And you know Him, the true and living God, as revealed in Jesus Christ. Not only do you know Him, but you're in Him. He's the true God, and all other gods are in Him. No one else possesses eternal life. When you read this verse, you see that he uses that word, true, three times in this one verse. Because it's essential that people understand truth as opposed to a lie. He's emphasizing the word true. And really, it, it could be translated real, genuine, He's the true God. 
And because of that standing in Christ, he finishes with a warning. Verse 21, little children, guard yourselves from idols. Don't get sucked in to any other supposed God. You've got the true one. Don't worship at any other shrine. Don't allow anything apart from Christ to influence you. Since you know the true God, stay away from those false idols. You see, folks, our faith is based on an abiding reality. The Son of God has come, born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, died a substitutionary death, rose from the grave, and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And He intercedes for us, and one day He's coming back. He's given us understanding so that we know Him who is true. And so, John's summary here we know we have eternal life. Along the way to entering into that eternal life, we have answered prayer. We have victory over sin. We know that we belong to God, and we know that He is the one true God in eternal life. Listen, if we know that these things are true, if we know that these things are certain, then that's the evidence. That's the evidence that we belong to God. And our lives are going to show, they're going to show exactly that, how, in a pattern of righteousness. That's what John wanted when he wrote this letter. That's want now. And so we consider these things and we walk with the Lord. Father, in a world of uncertainty, what a wonderful thing to know. These things that are certain. Oh, Father, thank you for eternal life. Thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has given us that eternal life. And Lord, we know that you hear us when we pray. We know that we have victory over sin. We know we belong to you. Lord, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is the true Help us, Father, from day to day to walk in the power of the Spirit. And as we do, Lord, lead us into situations where we can tell others about this assurance that we have, about the certainties that we have in Christ. Give us those opportunities, we pray. We thank you for this, and thank you for our time. Lord, I thank you for each one here. Bless you. Guide us and lead us out in your will. We thank you for this now in Christ's name.
enter into a time, time of uh, offering. That's uh, inspiring. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, 